And it's absolutely clear that they knew what they were doing was wrong, they knew that it was unlawful, and they did it anyway. And what was it? Could have been anything. That seems to be the slogan of the Republican National Party. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake, California. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN and Eureka's. KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites except for Spotify. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. And oh, hey, a quick thanks to our friend Nicole Sandler for filling in for us on Friday's broadcast, along with her very insightful interview with climate and science author Eugene Linden on his new book, Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change. From 1979 to the present. Did you know it was going on that long, Desi Doyle? <laughs> Apparently, yes. Actually, it's, a, it's an interesting book, interesting interview, especially for people who may be too young to have heard all of the ins and outs and the dastardly deeds that have led us to this place of no action or little action, I should say, on climate change. Like me. Too young like me. Yes, Thank you very much. Mere for infants That's like right. you. Uh, as always, if you missed it or or any other broadcasts from all from the beginning of time, uh, we produce them five days a week. You know, you can download them all for free at bradblog.com anytime you like. So uh, thank you, Nicole. Uh, our friend John Nichols of The Nation joins us shortly. And I've got a lot to talk to him about, particularly his recent article headlined Impeach Clarence Thomas. On, of course, uh, the perhaps the most corrupt U.S. Supreme Court justice of all time. But speaking of accountability and corruption and uh, the unspeakable and, frankly, still fully unknowable amount of corruption by the nation's by far most corrupt president of all times, Donald Trump. And by the way, that's saying something, given that, you know, George W. Bush was the previous 
uh, and, and until Trump, most corrupt president of all time. Anyway, uh, the news of this guy's corruption continues to pile up. It just never ends. And of course, without accountability, it never will end. And it will only get worse, whether it's a second term for Donald Trump or or any of his acolytes hoping to carry out, uh, carry on his his corrupt and uh, still so far unpunished uh, traditions, let's call them. Anyway, via Summer Concepcion at TPM on Sunday, the State Department said in a report that it has incomplete accounting of gifts presented to former President Donald Trump, former uh, Vice President Mike Pence, and other former Trump administration officials during Trump's final year in office. Huh. No record on who gave him what as a gift during his final year in office. Also, nothing about Pence's gifts or any Trump administration official. That does not sound right, does it? The department's claim is issued in a full report being published in the Federal Register on Monday, citing missing data from the White House in the report. The department said the executive office of the president did not submit any information about gifts received by Trump and his family from foreign leaders in 2020. Additionally, the department noted that the General Services Administration did not submit information related to gifts that Mike Pence and White House staffers received from foreign leaders in 2020. The department wrote that it attempted to collect the missing information from the National Archives and Records Administration and from the General Services Administration, but it was confirmed that, quote, potentially relevant records are not available to the protocol office, quote, under applicable access rules for retired records. What? What does that even mean? I don't know. Applicable access rules for retired records, the records that are supposed to be kept of all gifts given to the president and his staff by foreign leaders and then stored at the National Archives? It sounds to me like whatever that phrase means, it means somebody probably broke the law. You, do you think? Is there still a law in this country? Does it still can you still break it? But this could be actually even worse than it seems. And by the way, it already seems pretty bad. A a footnote in the uh, in the report acknowledges a, quote, lack of accurate record keeping pertaining to diplomatic gifts maintained by the office of the chief of protocols gifts gift unit between get this January 20, 2017. Yes, when Trump began his presidency and through the end of his term in January 2021. In social media speak at this point, I would say WTF. The uh, report comes even as the Justice Department is reportedly preparing to investigate Trump's 15 boxes of White House documents that he brought to his Mar-a-Lago resort in Palm Beach after finally leaving the White House. Uh, Those 15 boxes are confirmed to have had classified information in them, you know, from the president whose entire campaign for the White House was based on locking up a former secretary of state when she apparently accidentally replied to a few emails that had some stuff in them marked classified uh, from her her, uh, private email address. 
The report also comes on the heels of the revelations of seven and a half hours, a seven and a half hour call gap in Trump's White House call logs and presidential diary on the day of the deadly Capitol insurrection. The National Archives turned over call logs to the January 6th Select Committee, but they show nothing for more than seven and a half hours during pretty much the entirety of the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Capitol. That mammoth gap in Trump's calls on January 6th runs contrary to known confirmed reports of multiple calls that the then president is known to have taken or made with key allies during that very same period as the insurrection unfolded last year. So pick a crime here. Each one of them far worse than anything we have ever ever seen from any American presidency. Yes, including George W. Bush. Yes, including Richard Nixon and Watergate. This is not even a contest. What surprises me about all of this is why did it take so long on the State Department gift log to find out about it? I mean, we're a year into Biden's presidency. Didn't anyone notice in the four years (laughs) of the Trump presidency that, hey, this part is also not being filled out? Well, if you haven't noticed, Desi Doyen, the Justice Department right now is going through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, indictments because on the very last day or not the last day, but the very end of the uh, uh, Trump White House, there was a huge attack on the U.S. Capitol that they're still working their way up through the food chain, uh, hopefully ending with Donald Trump. But we will see. We talked about that last week, uh, late last week with uh, uh, Randall Eliason, the former federal prosecutor, who, by the way, thinks that what the DOJ and uh, uh, Merrick Garland are doing is just right. He believes, in fact, they are working their way up towards Trump and his cronies, maybe If time allows, we'll take some calls on that at the end of the hour and see if you all agree. 818-985-5735 is our phone number if you want to jot it down. But then there's this, uh, before I get to my guest here, uh, there's this uh, also from the weekend in a CNN exclusive. Two days after the 2020 presidential election, as votes were still being tallied, Donald Trump's eldest son texted then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows that, quote, We have operational control, unquote, to ensure that his father would get a second term in office with Republican majorities in the U.S. Senate and swing state legislatures, CNN has learned. In the text, which had not been previously reported, Donald Trump Jr. lays out ideas for keeping his father in power again just two days after the election, before it had even been called by the networks yet. He lays out uh, plans to keep him in power by subverting the electoral college process. Yes, CNN, not to subvert the electoral college process, but to steal the election. Which is exactly what Republicans, by the way, would be calling it if Democrats did anything even close to what uh, Republicans uh, attempted to do here. All of this, according to the message reviewed by uh, CNN, the text is among records obtained by the House Select Committee investigating January 6, 2021. It's very simple. Trump Jr. texted to Meadows on November 5, adding later in the same missive, we have multiple paths. We control them all. Immediately before his text to Meadows describing multiple paths to, yes, steal the election, 
Trump Jr. texted Meadows, quote, this is what we need to do. Please read it. Please get it to everyone that needs to see it. The November 5, 2020 text message outlines a strategy that is nearly identical to what allies of the former president attempted to carry out in the subsequent months. Lawsuits and recounts to prevent certain swing states from uh, being able to finish certifying their results, as well as having a handful of Republican state houses put forward slates of fake Trump electors. All of that was laid out early on. And of course, if all of that failed, according to the Trump Jr. text, GOP lawmakers in Congress could simply vote to reinstall Trump as president on January 6th. Quote, we have operational control, total leverage. The message reads, adding moral, (laughs) moral high ground, POTUS must start second term now. Not sure what he's referring to with the moral high ground there when he's talking about stealing an election. But the point being, uh, apparently it did not matter what the voters said, because at that point they didn't even know what the voters said just two days after the election. Uh, But, you know, Trump Jr. and everyone else who did exactly what Trump called Trump Jr. called for two days after the election. What was that? What did they do? Well, they attempted to steal the presidential election right before our very eyes. And more than a year later, our media apparently still have a problem calling it for what it was, an attempted election theft. The text from Trump Jr. is revealing on a number of levels. It shows how the closest uh, to the former president were already exchanging ideas for how to overturn the election, as CNN describes it, months before the January 6th insurrection and before all the votes were even counted. It would be another two days before major news outlets declared Joe Biden the winner on January 7. But they weren't trying to overturn the election. They weren't trying to challenge the election. They tried to steal it. And words matter. And you can bet your bottom dollar that if Democrats had done Anything like any of this at any time, Republicans would be describing the Democrats' attempt to steal the election. Every single day, hundreds of times a day, every single day on every single right-wing media outlet and non-right-wing media outlet alike. Every single day since then. Just days ago, U.S. District Judge David Carter, a federal judge out here in California, said that Trump, along with the uh, right wing lawyer John Eastman, launched a, quote, unprecedented, unquote, campaign to do exactly that, to steal the election. He called it, quote, a coup in search of a legal theory, which, frankly, is also a very nice way to put it, which sort of makes Uh, The conversation between Jake Tapper on CNN and House Select Committee Vice Chair Liz Cheney sound almost quaint when we hear the tap dance around whether or not any actual crimes were committed by the president and his henchmen on January 6th of 2021, which was, of course, their final effort to steal the election This time by throwing thousands of bodies, essentially, at the U.S. Capitol in order to prevent the official certification of Joe Biden's victory. You're the vice chair of the January 6th committee. The New York Times uh, reporting this morning that your committee has concluded uh, that you have enough evidence to make a criminal referral 
for President Trump to the Justice Department for obstructing an official proceeding and for conspiracy to defraud the United States. Um, is that true? Do you have enough evidence to refer Trump for criminal charges? Well, we have not made a decision about referrals uh, on the committee. I think that it is absolutely the case. It's absolutely clear that um, what President Trump uh, was doing, uh, what, what a number of people around him were doing, that they knew it was unlawful. They did it anyway. I think you certainly saw that in the decision uh, that was issued by Judge Carter a few weeks ago, uh, where he concluded that uh, it was more likely than not that the President of the United States was engaged uh, uh, in criminal activity. Uh, I think what we have seen is a massive and well-organized and well-planned uh, effort that used multiple tools to try to overturn an election. Uh, you've seen just in the last few days uh, a, a plea agreement from one of the leaders of the Proud Boys, which, which lays out in really chilling detail the extent to which violence was planned, um, the extent to which uh, the message that went out on December 19th about the planning, about the rally in Washington, and don't forget, Donald Trump tweeted out that message, be, be there, be wild, um, that the day after that message, uh, the organization and the planning started, and, and that they understood, that they knew that they were going to attempt to use violence to try to stop the transfer of power. That is the, the definition of an insurrection, mm -hmm. uh, and it is, it is absolutely chilling. And just to be clear, you've seen this evidence, and you believe President Trump committed these two crimes. Uh, I, what I've just quoted to you is a public document. It is the plea agreement in the, the Donahoe case. Uh, everybody can look at it. I, I would highly recommend everybody does look at it. It's the statement of offense in that plea agreement. Uh, the committee has uh, obviously been focused very much, has got a, a tremendous amount of testimony and documents um, that I think very, very clearly demonstrate the extent of the planning and the organization and the objective, uh, and, and the objective was absolutely to try to stop the count of electoral votes, to try to interfere with that official proceeding, and it's absolutely clear that they knew what they were doing was wrong, they knew that it was unlawful, and they did it anyway. They knew it was unlawful, and they did it anyway. A massive, well-organized effort to overturn the election, to obstruct the official proceeding. All of that is true, as uh, Republican Liz Cheney uh, describes there. And, you know, she's working in Congress. She's working on this uh, on this committee. So she's being very careful about what she says. But I, I don't have to be quite as careful. Uh, you know, I've I've said this before. I, I've tweeted it over the weekend after the CNN story came out about Donald Trump two days after the election, texting the chief of staff of all the ways that they could steal the election. So, I, you know, I, but I guess I have to just keep saying this over and over again until our national media and until the Democratic Party grow up and start calling this for what it is, as Republicans would do if this was reversed. As I tweeted over the weekend, Trump and his supporters, including his son, tried to steal the 2020 presidential election. They didn't question results. They didn't hope to delay or undermine them or challenge it or reverse it. They tried to steal an election, period. And yes, words matter. Republicans know that. That's why if it was reversed, they would be talking about how Democrats tried to steal the 2020 election every single day since that election, multiple times a day, 
everywhere they could say it. So how many stories like this one from uh, from uh, CNN are, are needed to make that clear to American to the American media and frankly to Democratic politicians? Republicans tried to steal the 2020 election. They failed, but they tried to steal it blatantly right before our very eyes. And they will try again in 2024 until we all start calling this for what it was. And while it seems everyone, uh, you know, has just come to expect that, oh, you know, that sort of thing from Donald Trump and from Republican politicians, does anybody give a damn that we have a sitting member of the Supreme Court who, according to all of the available evidence, was very much likely in on this scheme to steal a presidential election, if not a part of it himself? I know I do. Yes, I give a damn. And I suspect my guest joining me momentarily does as well. I have not forgotten about Clarence Thomas and neither, I suspect, has John Nichols. I hope you haven't either. What did Clarence know? When did he know it? And what in God's name is anybody going to do about any of it? John Nichols joins me next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I haven't forgotten about you, Clarence. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we shared a tweet from our friend David Dan, the executive editor over at the American Prospect, who tweeted uh, in Hollywood screenplay style, just after Will Smith's now infamous slap of Chris Rock uh, during the Oscars about two weeks ago. Uh, David tweeted, quote, exterior, Dolby Theater, night. Will Smith leans up against a lamppost, finishes his smoke. A figure enters the frame from behind, holding out an envelope of money. Smith chuckles, takes the envelope. She turns to camera. It's Ginny Thomas who says to Smith, Clarence thanks you for taking the heat off. Clever, because it's kind of true. But in fact, the story of longtime far-right Republican activist Ginny Thomas, wife of longtime far-right Republican uh, activist Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and her relentless sharing of text messages with Donald Trump's then-Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in November and December of 2020, urging him to keep fighting to steal the 2020 presidential election, that news had just been broken by The Washington Post's Bob Woodward and Robert Costa at the end of the previous week, just days before that infamous slap. But the corporate media did not even wait until the slap heard round the world that Sunday night to start downplaying what had been reported in The Washington Post. On the weekend, 
After the Post had broke this story late in the week, the stunning news about the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice sharing dozens of text messages about stealing a presidential election in 2020 with the chief of staff of the then president. Well, as our dear friend, the late Eric Bullert noted in one of his final columns at the end of last month, the Sunday morning talk shows sprinted into gaff patrol mode after President Joe Biden made a nine-word ad-libbed comment in Poland over the weekend about how Vladimir Putin should not be allowed to stay in power in Russia. On Meet the Press, USA's Today, USA Today's Susan Page emphasized Biden's comment was, quote, distracting and, quote, undisciplined. The assembled pundits spent nearly 10 minutes discussing the story along with a new NBC poll that was bad news for Biden because inflation. As Bullitt wrote, what was mostly ignored by the roundtable was the blockbuster story about Virginia Ginny Thomas, wife of right-wing Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. She had been texting unhinged QAnon-like messages to Trump's chief of staff after the 2020 election, strategizing and urging the, that Biden's victory be overturned, saving America from, quote, the end of liberty. As it turns out, Bullard notes, the NBC pundits on Sunday, that Sunday, spent just 45 seconds discussing that story. So, yeah, uh, after the uh, that Sunday night's Oscar slap, pretty much all of the news oxygen for the rest of the following week was taken up by it. But Clarence did not even need to wait that long to be very thankful that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. The mainstream corporate media was doing the job, doing the job for him. But still, no, we at least have not forgotten about the corruption of the Thomases, not from the news of two weeks ago, not from the news of 10 or even 30 years ago. Yes, Clarence Thomas is only sitting on the highest court in the land as its longest serving justice because his controversial nomination back in 1991 was backed with tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of supporting advertisements and PR back in 1991 by a little known right wing operative group named Citizens United. Yes, the same Citizens United who two decades later in 2010, would be rewarded, along with the rest of the right-wing ecosystem, in a Supreme Court ruling by the very same name, allowing hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in corporate dark money to flood into our political and electoral systems. It also helped flood the coffers of groups like, yes, Ginny Thomas's own phony nonpartisan nonprofits with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in payoffs to her in the immediate aftermath in 2011. In what some progressive critics, including ourselves, uh, described at the time as the judicial insider trading of Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny. Around that same time in 2011, we also learned that Clarence Thomas knowingly and willfully violated the rule of law for 20 years, for 20 years by not detailing his wife Ginny's hundreds of thousands of dollars that she had received from the right-wing Heritage Foundation. She, he did not disclose that on his annual financial disclosure documents, a very simple and easy-to-understand form, by the way. 
And in so doing, he violated federal law that should have held him accountable with a $50,000 fine and up to one year imprisonment or both for each annual violation of federal law. Instead, once he was caught, once he was called out, he was allowed to file amended forms for the past two decades. A Supreme Court justice who could not understand the simple direction on a simple financial disclosure form asking him to list any of his, quote, spouse's non-investment income, unquote. That was it. He checked the box that said none. Instead of none, it was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Did you even hear about that story? Do you remember it? We do. No accountability. And yes, all of that is very well documented, by the way, including Clarence's copies of Clarence's signed, obviously and unlawfully false disclosure forms. You can download them still at bradblog.com. And now we learn Clarence's own wife was pushing the big lie herself in hopes of helping to steal the 2020 election. And she participated in the planning of rallies that led to the insurrection. And there is still, what, no outcry for real accountability for the corrupt Thomases? Or if there is, it's drowned out, it's drowned out by a, you know, a slap at the Oscars and a war in Eastern Europe. As the GOP's stolen and packed Supreme Court prepares to overturn one decades-old precedent after another. Really? We're all ignoring this? Yeah, apparently so. Unless the American people, and yes, Democrats, begin to make the noise they should about this affront to the nation and the rule of law and to democracy itself. Writing at the nation, just before the news cycle was overtaken by, uh, well, everything else, the nation's Washington correspondent, John Nichols, noted Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's actions have invited an impeachment inquiry into what he knew about efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election and how he acted upon that knowledge. During his more than 30 years on the high court, he has regularly faced criticism for abusing his position. Up to this point, the court's longest serving justice has avoided accountability. But Thomas's scandalous approach to his responsibilities has caught up with him, writes Nichols. Emails reveal that his wife, Ginny Thomas, participated in efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election in the weeks leading up to the January 6th insurrection. That insurrection is the subject of a congressional inquiry that former President Donald Trump has tried to thwart at every turn. In January, the Supreme Court rejected Trump's attempt to block the release of presidential records to the House committee leading that investigation. But there was one dissenter on the court, Clarence Thomas. Seen in the context of the revelation that Jenny Thomas hectored members of the Trump administration and Congress to overturn the election result... The prospect that Clarence Thomas's dissent was motivated by a desire to hide details of inappropriate activity by his wife and others. Yes, communications from Ginny herself might have been in those documents that Clarence was the only justice on the bench willing to vote to block them from going to Congress. 
Well, that raises sufficient concerns, writes Nichols, to justify an impeachment inquiry. The point of that inquiry should be to answer the essential questions asked by veteran broadcaster Dan Rather after the latest revelations about Ginny Thomas's actions. Quote, what does Clarence Thomas know and when did he know it? Good questions. But I would add, what the hell are any of us going to do about it? Will those questions ever actually be asked, whether in an impeachment proceeding or any other? Well, joining us now to answer that question, perhaps, is journalist John Nichols, Washington correspondent for The Nation, associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times, and the author of many books on progressive politics, including his latest, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. Oh, Mr. Nichols, uh, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Brad, it was a pleasure to be with you. It was a pleasure to listen to your rant. Well, Uh, (laughs) somebody's got to. (laughs) You know, I I have to tell you, before you uh, take us in all sorts of wise and important directions, I've been writing about Jenny Thomas Mm -hmm. for 22 years. Yeah. Yeah. I I first wrote about her. I did a book on the Florida recount Mm -hmm. and the Florida debacle yep. where the presidency of the United States was stolen. I mean, yep. I think it's important to note Trump isn't the first first uh, stealer of a presidency or okay. attempted to theft of a presidency. We had one that succeeded back yep. in uh, 2000, mm-hmm. and Dick Cheney and, and George Bush were the, the perpetrators. Uh, but it is notable. In that book, I wrote about the Supreme Court's intervention in the Bush v. Gore case, mm-hmm. an intervention that, that ultimately effectively gave the presidency to Bush and Cheney. And uh, and I wrote then about the fact that, that Jenny Thomas was already working yeah. with the Bush-Cheney administration to fill positions in that administration at the time that Clarence Thomas joined in that, that closely divided decision uh, to shut down the Florida recount. So this woman has a quarter century yeah. of, of engagement in, in politics in a way that should not only have led to recusals by her husband, but ultimately when he didn't recuse, should have led to his removal from the Supreme Court. Uh, Yeah, of course. And, you know, that's what's so amazing about this is these are all open secrets. None of this is surprising. This has been going on year after year after year. It's why I went back to, you know, our reporting at at Brad Blog going back uh, 10, 15 years already on this. Look, before we get to uh, into some of these details on Clarence uh, Thomas, uh, John, I want to get, you know, last week I cited him here in my uh, rant just a moment ago. Uh, But the last week, uh, the progressive media world, and I would argue the nation as a whole, we suffered a devastating loss with the death of our friend, frequent guest on this program, longtime progressive media critic and author Eric Bollert, killed in a horrific bicycling accident at 57, uh, at the age of 57. Uh, His loss, I believe, has left just a huge hole, not only on this program where he appeared dozens of times, but in the the progressive media ecosystem. You know, we don't have sort of the redundant, the redundant that we see on the right. When Rush Limbaugh died, there was, uh, you know, scores of people ready to fill his three hours of, of ranting and lying and gaslighting the nation. But uh, not so with the critical work that Bullard did to expose the uh, 
uh, the corporate media for their failings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, before we get to the Thomas idiots, I, w- I wonder if you have any sure. thoughts today on the tragic loss of our friend Eric last week. Oh, we, I do. And in fact, I was, uh, you know, there are very few deaths that that come truly unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, usually somebody's been sick or they're older or whatever. Um, and even then, I'm often surprised. But uh, I was shocked by, by Eric's death and, and, and felt that same sense of loss that you do, mm-hmm. because uh, I, I have indeed intersected with him and worked on the same issues with him over many, many years. You know mm-hmm. that Bob McChesney and I wrote, have written a number of books mm-hmm. on media and democracy, mm-hmm. and we often cited Eric's work in those books. It's also another thing that, that I would point out, and I think it's, you've said such good things about him, and, and I don't need to belabor it too much more. But I would make the point that Eric was a very serious researcher, mm-hmm. um, and and he produced information that that clarified discussions in our country mm-hmm. that otherwise would not have been clarified. Right. And I uh, relied on on his work often and, and paralleled some of my work with his. And one of the most important things that that he did uh, for I think listeners to this station to be aware of was back in. Uh, Early 2016, he uh, took data as regards coverage of the presidential campaign mm-hmm. uh, at that point and raised the very profound question of why, at the same, when Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were polling at the exact same level, right, mm-hmm. getting about the same percentage in polls, mm-hmm. and were at roughly similar places in the Iowa and New Hampshire uh, contest, mm-hmm. you know, that early stages of that presidential race why Trump was getting some, you know, like, I think I, I have to go back and look at the figure, but I think it was like a, something like a 75 to one ratio yes. of more coverage than right. Sanders. Yeah. I'm not kidding. No, I'm not kidding. It was that level. Yeah. And, and Bullard uh, detailed this and, and I picked up on it and did a number of articles and, and looked at the issue even more deeply. And, and, uh, but it was Eric who, who really worked in that area. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't that he was the biggest fan of Bernie Sanders. Right. And, you know, I think he, he, he did it because it was reality. Yeah. And if he hadn't done that, we would not. I mean, I, I still cite that data to this day. And I can point to a hundred other examples of where Eric, uh, you know, took that extra time. Yep. The time that, that most journalists, most researchers, many scholars don't take to kind of dig into these fundamental questions. And uh, he is gone, and tragically, but he, the legacy of his work is going to last for generations and generations. He exposed the failures of corporate media, and that the exposures that he does, he did, I will not forget. Yeah. And I will, and I know you won't either. I, no, we'll I won't. Make sure that people remember this. Yeah, remember and, the work that he did. And that's why I say it just leaves a huge hole. Uh, you know, obviously we're sad, we miss him, but there was some critical yeah. work that he did, some research that he did that was so important that helped sort of feed the rest of the progressive uh, media ecosystem that I don't know if it will be filled. Uh, that you know, that said, uh, the, there's just not a lot of us, unfortunately, because the corporate, uh, the you know, the the right wing corporate media has 
so squeezed the progressive side. We don't have a lot of of, of redundancy. We don't got a lot of other uh, you know extras standing by on the bench. So John Nichols, uh, stay healthy, be kind, as <laughs> uh, as Eric used to say in his uh, press run columns. Let me uh, let's move uh, back here to uh, unfortunately uh, Clarence Thomas and Ginny. Uh, Article three, section one of the U.S. Constitution notes that federal judges are only uh, allowed to, quote, hold their offices during good behavior, which you recognize in your piece at The Nation headlined Impeach Clarence Thomas uh, as, as pretty vague. Before you go on to cite Brennan Center uh, and their argument that judicial impeachments have, quote, historically been limited to cases of serious ethical or criminal misconduct. Have we finally reached the point, uh, John Nichols, where that is the case with Clarence Thomas, that there needs to, at the very least, be an impeachment inquiry? Absolutely. We have reached that point. There is simply no question. The fact of the matter is that there's probably no more important work uh, for the United States Supreme Court than that of uh, policing the other branches of government, especially policing the other branches of government when they they stray uh, radically beyond the boundaries of, of what the Constitution and what the laws of the country permit. Uh, when Donald Trump sought to overturn the results of the 2020 election in what can only accurately be referred to as a coup attempt, right? This is a a defeated president mm-hmm. seeking to retain his office in any other country, we'd call that a coup attempt. Yeah, by stealing, uh, by not overturning John, stealing the election. He tried stealing. to steal the election. Yeah. Let's be clear. Go ahead. And, <laughs> yes. And he sought to hold office. Yep. Illegally. Yep. Illicitly. Yep. And so that is a coup. Yep. And so uh, when you are investigating something of that consequence, if there is even the slightest possibility that a member of the U.S. Supreme Court used his position to try and undermine or limit that investigation mm-hmm. because his wife was a co-conspirator, uh, because his political allies were involved in the issue, I mean, that has to be investigated. And it is best investigated, in my view, mm-hmm. uh, in the context of an impeachment inquiry, because an impeachment inquiry goes to the heart of the matter. Should this person continue to serve on this bench? Should this person continue to be in this uh, incredibly empowered position? And yet, and, uh, I, I think it should be explored. Well, and, and you know, and yet I'm seeing this, these, this, this response from Democrats who, you know, saying, well, uh, Clarence Thomas should absolutely recuse himself from any cases related to 2020 uh, or the insurrection, which to me seems like a no brainer. Obviously, he should uh, recuse himself from that, given the text we've learned from, uh, you know, from from Ginny Thomas. But I mean, that doesn't seem nearly enough. It seems to me that he should be recused from anything that has to do with elections, period, not just 2020, but 2022, 2024, all of which Donald Trump is uh, closely involved with. So those should be that seems like the minimum bar as to well, impeachment. Brad, why are we hearing well, why are we hearing any calls from Democrats to say, yes, we ought to be uh, beginning an, an impeachment inquiry? Well, I. And, and so the only reason I asked if I could interrupt, yeah. and, and you got to the exact right point, is, I mean, excuse me, we're having a discussion about recusal at this point for Clarence Thomas? <laughs> right. I mean, this is absurd. This guy isn't going to recuse. 
Right. He's made it absolutely clear. He's already crossed the line. Right. This would be like saying, this would be like saying, you know, well, you know, uh, at the very least, Jesse James should recuse himself from robbing banks. <laughs> right. right? Yes. You know, I mean, it, it's like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, the crime has already been committed. Yeah. The, the notion that we would now say, oh, he should recuse himself going forward. Uh, that doesn't begin to get to the heart of the matter. And also it doesn't get to the reality. He won't recuse. Right. He's not going to. And the Supreme Court, uh, because of, frankly, an internal corruption in this regard, does not have a good standard for recusal. They basically allow the justices to uh, decide themselves, and then nobody says anything about it. Um, and it, it's absurd. And, and so the only option we have, the only option we have in this case is, is impeachment. Now, recusal is not going to happen. Well, I think it's probably not going to happen either. They should still be calling for it for all elections, but they should also be calling for him to resign based on what happened. But he's not going to do that either. So, you know, if he won't resign, yes, impeach, but still the same outcome. No, Uh, John, I mean, there's no way the Republicans in the Senate are going to agree to remove him, even if he, uh, you know, to quote someone else, shot someone in broad daylight on Fifth Avenue. (laughs) So, you know, what do you say, John Nichols, to those who suggest that, oh, impeaching Clarence Thomas is pointless because Mitch McConnell will refuse to convict him and it's all a big waste of time? Well, uh, I wrote a book about impeachment. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this issue. And look, for those who say that, that it's just a waste of time to impeach someone who clearly meets the standard uh, for an impeachment inquiry, and remember, an impeachment inquiry doesn't convict. It simply, you know, determines whether the charges should be made, mm-hmm. right? And and that's what that's what I'm calling for. Mm-hmm. I'm not even I'm not even saying Clarence Thomas will be charged. I'm just saying it's appropriate. There's enough evidence that you ought to move on this. Uh, for those who say, well, we can't do that because Mitch McConnell might not let us. Right. You know, he might not agree with this. Mm-hmm. Then you might as well take the Constitution out of the National Archives and put it through the shredder, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, what's, what's the point of having an impeachment power if you don't use it in a moment like this, in a case like this? Now, I do understand the barriers. I understand the challenges. And, and here's the bottom line. Uh, just because Nixon got on the plane and flew to San Clemente, does that mean it was wrong to, to bring the charges, the impeachment charges that mm-hmm. the uh, Judiciary Committee brought? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I think it's part of the permanent record. It matters a great deal. And I think it discredited Nixon in, in some fundamental ways. He clawed back a little bit historically, but, but I think it was to the good. Did, well, did it matter to impeach Trump? I think we're finding out in this, during this Ukraine uh, circumstance that what if, what if members of Congress had said, ah, we don't really care about Ukraine. Right. We don't really care. Back in 2019, mm-hmm. and then early 2020, uh, we don't care. Trump, who cares what Trump did? Right. You know, it's just a mm-hmm. little country over on the other side of the world. Well, uh, no, they did exactly the right thing. They they impeached Donald Trump. He was let off the hook by the Senate, but he should have been. And similarly for the insurrection. And so sometimes impeachment is ser- is is simply putting on the record the fact that the, at least the U.S. House of Representatives believes that a crime has been committed, a, a constitutional crime, I'd put it in mm-hmm. that context. And, and so I favor it for that reason. And also, I'm maybe, you know, I'm just hopeful enough, just hopeful enough to believe that the incredible evidence of Clarence Thomas's wrongdoing mm-hmm. uh, brought to bear in an impeachment inquiry might be sufficient either, A, 
to cause him to, uh, at, at the least, uh, decide it's time to start recusing, or uh, perhaps even to resign. There are all sorts of avenues. There are all sorts of possibilities. When you look at all the impeachments through history, what you find is that they have often had impacts, even if you didn't get to a Senate conviction. Mm. And so I think putting it off the table is, is simply saying, and, and would effectively have the impact of saying, um, yeah, we got this revelation about Jenny Thomas. We got this concerns about Clarence Thomas. But, uh, you know, we reviewed it. We don't care. Um, carry on. And, and the message from that uh, will be particularly relevant in 2025 when the court will, or 2024, when the court might well, very well, be dealing with another attempt to steal an election. Did uh, Ginny do anything here that she should be held to account to, as you see it, John Nichols? Not a whole lot. You know, I mean, I'd be quite honest. I mean, she's as guilty, I think, as any of the other people who conspired uh, on behalf of an insurrection, mm -hmm. right? And if you can prove Which is that, pretty, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's serious stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, and I don't, I don't dismiss it when I say not a lot. Yeah. I'm talking about pure criminal charges. Um, people do have a pretty broad leeway in this country to advocate for what they think should be done, right? Yep. Uh, it's a question of whether they act upon it. So when you ask me whether Jenny Thomas is, uh, is somebody who could face some sort of liability, uh, I, I think that's something that could be explored, but I don't know how far you'd get. On the other hand, if you look at the people who took her messages, right, the people who she communicated with mm -hmm. who were in positions either as uh, members of the administration or members of Congress to try and steal an election mm -hmm. and that, who then, in fact, took action, those are the people I'd look at. And I would look at the people she was communicating with, and then she becomes a party to that. She becomes a witness, perhaps, she provides she, she provides some of the most powerful and indicting evidence, but uh, I have to be honest. I'm, I'm a little less interested in Jenny Thomas than I am in the people who she communicated with, including her husband. John, I, I've got to take a quick break here. Uh, can you stick around after the break? Because I want to ask you one question about that and the sure. investigation of those. Uh, members of Congress and, yes, the uh, the former president uh, and get your thoughts on that uh, before we go to a quick break here. Quick answer, though. Uh, you know, uh, we've been talking about this as well on the on the program, even if you were able to get uh, an impeachment and somehow magically a removal of uh, of Clarence Thomas from office. You know, if the uh, Supreme Court, uh, if the uh, Senate is uh, the the majority is won back by the Republicans, uh, will Republicans ever, ever at this point, with or without, frankly, the an impeachment of Clarence Thomas, will Republicans ever let another Supreme Court uh, nominee go through if a Democrat is in the White House in the future? Never. Come on, don't be don't be unrealistic. I mean, it's just I'll say it very very quickly. Uh, Joe Biden nominated arguably the most qualified and impressive uh, nominee for the Supreme Court uh, in, in a very long time. You know, Judge Jackson was, is amazing by her record, mm -hmm. the diversity she brings to the court, in not just, you know, the fact that she's a black woman, but her legal skills, her legal background as a public defender. And she had, she had support from across the board, not just from progressives, but from libertarians who said, this is an incredible scholar of and supporter of the, the Bill of Rights. And yet uh, the vast majority, all but three of the Republicans in the Senate refused to vote for her. Yeah. 
and the, the Republican who matters if the Republicans take control of the Senate. Mitch McConnell uh, made it clear he was opposed. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't imagine that unless Joe Biden were to nominate Lindsey Graham <laughs> yeah. he, could, he could get Mitch McConnell to back. Fair enough. Back I, I got to get to a quick break here. John's going to stick around with us for just a few more minutes, our closing few minutes. John Nichols of The Nation with us here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. certainly are every day right here at the Bradcast. Welcome back to it. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com speaking with my friend John Nichols from The Nation. John, I want to get your thoughts very quickly. I've got very few minutes here uh, left, but I want to play this quick clip from my conversation with Randall Eliason late last week. Um, He's a former federal prosecutor, now uh, George Washington University Law School, a contributor to Washington Post. He says that what Merrick Garland is doing to bring accountability for the uh, uh, January 6 insurrectionists all the way up to Donald Trump uh, is actually the right the right way to do it. And at the right speed, he notes that Enron took four years before there was charges. Watergate took two years before there was charges. Uh, here's part of that conversation. And then I'll get your uh, thoughts on it, John Nichols. Garland's role is to not be swayed by kind of political pressures, but to take the case wherever the facts and the law lead them, as he said, which... Mm-hmm. To me, it appears to be exactly what he's doing. And the suggestions, frankly, you know, from uh, some of the critics that Biden should, you know, replace him or fire him or lean on him to do something, I mean, that's exactly what everybody was outraged about when Trump and Barr were doing it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That kind of politicization of the Justice Department, that the idea that Biden should lean on Garland or fire him because he's not moving fast enough, is the exact opposite of what we want and the exact yeah. opposite of what... Biden and Garland promised to do to get away from the Trump era where Bill Barr was running around and doing favors for Trump cronies and interfering in the administration of justice and politicizing the Justice Department. That is the last thing we want. And frankly, the critics, the criticism is based on really nothing more than just impatience. Well, I, f- I feel that impatience, that's for sure. Uh, John Nichols, uh, y- y- your thoughts on uh, Merrick Garland? A lot of folks calling for him. No, he stepped down. He's not moving fast enough. Randall Eliason, our friend Marcy Wheeler, they all think he's moving at the pace he should. Uh, your thoughts on uh, Merrick Garland and the DOJ's investigation uh, as they work their way, hopefully, towards Trump? I'd like to see a more transparent investigation. I'd like to know more about it. Um, that's the bottom line. And an attorney general has the certainly has the the power and the authority and the the platform, and we should talk about what they're doing and to say, look, we are investigating this, and here's here's what we're looking at. Um, we I don't think that there's enough communication from that office, and and I'd like to see it. Uh, if if what I hear and see is you know evidence of a of a serious inquiry and they're really going places as as some very wise people who I respect suggest is the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrific. 
that's great. But, um, but we need to have that. And, and, and look, I got to tell you something. Uh, I understand and respect what was being said there about timelines, you know, that sometimes takes a long time to put a case together. Mm -hmm. Uh, this case happened in broad daylight, you know, this is, but it was it was seven hundred people who have uh, you know eight hundred people I think they've now uh, charged yeah it happened in broad daylight but there was thousands of people it's the largest investigation in the history of the oh, DOJ no, no, no. I'm talking about the guy at the top yeah I'm ta- I'm talking about Donald Trump and what I'm saying is Donald Trump's actions uh, happened in broad daylight and uh, and I I do think that uh, I'm less worried about. Garland and I, you know, I'm willing to give him some time to, to mm-hmm. continue to, to investigate and work on this. I'm less worried about Garland than I am worried about um, the the January 6th committee in Congress. I am terrified by the prospect that they're going to produce a report, and and if if what they produce is a report, right, that mm-hmm. that you know goes right you know in the file next to the uh, Iran Contra committee report, um, <laughs> you know, we're going to end up in a situation where uh, there are clear crimes, clear impeachable offenses, clear evidence of wrongdoing that, that has absolutely occurred, we need to have recommendations for action. And we need to have congressional action where it is possible and where it is appropriate. Well, it, uh, and, I, and recommendations for criminal actions where that is appropriate. And so I'm, I worry a lot about the moment we are in, that we, are, uh, that we, we could end up uh, without the accountability that we need and looking at a Donald Trump running for president in 2024, um, saying that he got off, that, that, you know, there are all these investigations and nothing came of it. Well, I'm going to count on you, my friend, to continue your important work at The Nation to make sure none of that happens and we hold these people accountable. We've been working on it for, oh, I don't know, a few decades. If it takes a few <laughs> decades more, so be it. John Nichols, you can find his work, of course, at thenation.com, on the Twitters at Nichols Uprising. His latest book is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. Accountability. There's an idea for those who caused the crisis. Thanks, John. I got to get out. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. You're thanks, awesome. Guys. All right. Thank you. Uh, Got to get out. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my board operator, Gary Baca, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there till we see you here. Hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh, 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 oh,